Thank you, Amber. We, de we just decided that we want you to do an hour hymn sing sometime and lead us. So put, put that in, in your calendar. And uh, I can't sing a lick, but I love the music. And, and I love how it prepares us to worship the Lord. And one thing I like about hymns, not only is the music wonderful, but the words are so rich and eternal because it's based on scripture. Amen. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And if you like apples, please go downstairs. There's a few apples, there's bags down there, but I'm leaving this one for me during the sermon, so. In the announcements, I'll just highlight a few. Um, True Church Conference, I got it right this time. I usually say True Life Conference, I don't know why, but. Um, Isaac, raise your hand so people can see you. See Isaac for all the details. Um, he's a good salesman, but it's a good time, both for bonding with one another, getting to know people, but also learning about missions and the missionaries we support. Uh, but be sure to see Isaac for all the details and how the schedule works. Also take note of what Linda's put in the bulletin and we have a special ladies Christmas brunch announcement. Ladies Christmas brunch, Saturday, December 9th, that's coming up very quickly, from 9.30 to 12 in our fellowship hall. The theme is love, joy, and peace. Please bring a brunch item to share and a $10 or less item for the gift exchange. Please respond to the sign up, sign up genius if you will be attending. And then please pray about sharing how God has shown you his love to you this past year or how he has given you peace or joy during a difficult time. That reminds me of a book somebody gave my wife, Living with a Difficult Husband. It wasn't about me, but I'm sure Gail would say it applies directly. So be on the lookout for an email and see Catherine Layton for any questions. And we will have, as in the bulletin, youth choir practice today and two more days. Thank you, Andy. If you look in your worship folders, we begin to worship Christ today. I put in there at the beginning the Psalm of Thanksgiving. I didn't get to mention as much last week because we were commissioning my son and sending him off for training and praying for him while he's in, his, in the darkness. You need to be praying for Catherine because we just found out he's going to be actually be gone for seven months. So we won't see him to the end of June. He's going to have two more additional training sessions. Uh, we'll let you know. Uh, and I appreciate your prayers and, and support and letters. We'll let you know the information on how to send him a card of encouragement in days to come. <laughs> she could if she would. She would if she could. Something like that. In any case. Um, but look in your... Uh, I just want to point out the psalm. We went over devotional on last Wednesday night. Uh, but I, I'd like to draw your attention to it as well and to read, particularly as we've just finished uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, I find that to be a, 
really a joyful time for us to stop and think about uh, our thanksgiving to God. If, if you notice, it, it begins with this joyful noise, so there's hope for you, um, a- Andy, to, to sing. Um, Really, actually, the noise is a shout. It's like a shout of triumph, like as if your football team might have won, for example. That, that's the imagery. Because, uh, and it's a call not to just the Christian church. This is a call to all of the world uh, to do that, to, to recognize who, who God is and to respond in our service of him and to do so with joy. That's the gladness to then come into his presence with singing. And those of us who know God are enabled to do that. This is why we sing. It's such a part of what we do. We're not performing. When you hear these children sing, they're, they're singing from the heart, praising God. And God uh, delights in that uh, presence of, of song. And why? Because we, we know that the Lord, he is God. Uh, the Lord there is Yahweh. That, that is, this is God's personal name, if you will. Um, we know God, and what a great privilege it is. Those who know do serve and sing. We know what? That he is the creator. He made us. We, we know beyond that he redeemed us. Therefore, we're his people. Sheep of the pastor is the illustration there. As a, as a shepherd would care for his sheep. Uh, that analogy works with God in caring for his people. So we come then with thanksgiving. We come with praise. We come to bless his holy name. And why? And here's the, the, the reason as it culminates in this last section. Number one, God's good. God is always good. Circumstances you might be in may not be good, but God is always good. And even in those circumstances, he works them for our good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose, purpose in everything. And his steadfast love, the, the word there is chesed in the Hebrew. It's just such a beautiful word that uh, talks about uh, love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, um, all of that combined. And it's hard to translate, and they do the best they can. His steadfast love endures forever. Um, others may have a, a, an endearment for a period of time, commitment for a period of time, but not with God. His love is eternal, and particularly towards his people, his faithfulness to all generations. God will do what he says he will do. And because of that, we can praise him and thank him. I'm going to give you a moment here as we finish out this um, Thanksgiving season, move towards our remembrance of the first coming of Christ, Advent season next week. Uh, Why don't you take a moment now to prepare your heart, respond in thanksgiving and praise silently with God by yourself. Prepare your heart to sing and worship him today, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Oh, Father, our intention today is to come into your presence and to praise you and to bless your holy name. We respond in thanksgiving. Every good gift that we have comes from you. Everything that we get is not because of our merit, but because of your favor, your grace, because you are a good God. You're a God that doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, you are merciful, and you're full of grace and love. And what a privilege it is to know that. Even the apprehension of it isn't from our own design and our own initiative. It is because of you. You have revealed yourself to us. You, you have taken on human flesh and walked among us. You have experienced all the things that we have actually experienced in this life, so you know. And you function as a mediating high priest through our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his name we, we pray. And we bless and praise your name. And we thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that beyond that, that it would overflow in our lives as we praise you, serve you, respond in delight and joy, I pray that others might see that as a source and for satisfaction, a place to find refuge, a place to find strength in you and you alone. I pray for those that might be going through difficult circumstances at this time, that they would be, their thoughts would be drawn to you, recognizing that you will hear their prayer, and because of that we can rejoice in whatever circumstance we're in, knowing indeed this is the very will of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray in his name, amen. Psalm 116.12 says, How can I repay the Lord all the good he has done for me? The Lord has certainly been good to us as a congregation and as families, and that also brings peace and joy and, um, and thankfulness. So let's stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 636. 636, and we'll sing, Come, ye thankful people, come. 636.
Amen. Let's turn to number 532. 532. I press on toward the goal for which God has called me heavenward. Philippians 314. Higher ground. And can it be, but God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. 250, and can it be.
seated. Good morning, church. This morning, our scripture reading is from Acts 21, verses uh, 37 through Acts 22, verses verse 21. That's found on page 931 in the Pew Bibles. Let us go to the word. Acts 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This passage to me reflects the powerful call that we are uh, called to, to preach the gospel. It is sometimes um, in fraught circumstances that we do so. Sometimes it will make those we preach to very angry, as we'll see in next week's passage. Um, And yet we are called to do it. We're called to speak boldly, though those around us might not uh, hear our words. it is an important call. It is one we must not abandon. And sometimes we try to think of the ways that we might strategically be able to convey these things. And those are often important. But here, with Paul's just strict reading of his, or retelling of his testimony, we hear that it is the will of the Lord for us to preach the gospel, however he lays on our heart. So I asked that we all remember that as we go into our week. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer. And I will also make reference to the Psalm of Thanksgiving that Pastor referenced this morning. Father God, we come before you today, here in this sanctuary, to worship you, for you are good, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Father, we join with the psalmist in singing praises to your name, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Father, we give thanks to you here in the fellowship of believers. We give thanks to you for the ability to come here and worship you together. We give thanks to you for the gifts that you have given us, for the strength that you have given us, for the blessing of being able to participate in the gospel your gospel of truth, Lord, that you give us opportunities to speak this truth to everyone we encounter. We ask that you would strengthen us as we go about this work, your work, Lord God. We thank you for the time of thanksgiving we have been able to set aside, for the remembrance of all that we have been blessed with here in this country, in this church, in our households, Lord God, that you have given us tremendous gifts. You have given us the freedom to openly worship here publicly, Lord God, the freedom that many of our brothers and sisters throughout time and throughout this world have not had, Lord. We thank you for the providence that has established this country with the blessings that it does have, for the blessings that have rained down throughout history, Lord. We ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have squandered those blessings, for the ways that we have abandoned you and turned away from your providence and turned to our own understanding and our own might and our own righteousness, Lord, and away from yours. But now we thank you for the time of fellowship that we have, for the time of learning that we have, for the instructions that pastor is about to give us in your word. We ask that you would bless him, that he would be able to rightly divide it, that he would be able to rightly pronounce it to us, and that we would be able to receive it, that our hearts would be open to hear the words that you have prepared for us, Lord God. We thank you 
for bringing uh, all of us together here. We also thank you for the safe travels of those who are returning to our fellowship and for those who have recently left our fellowship, Lord God. We ask that you would strengthen them uh, on their paths that they might walk, that you would strengthen them to be a light in the world, that they would be a witness to all those encounter in the darkness. We thank you for the families and the children of this church, that they would be blessed with the knowledge of you, with the peace of your understanding. We thank you for the offering that you have given to us, for the blessing that we can participate in uh, your work by giving uh, back to you those things you have freely given to us, Lord. We ask that you would uh, use that for the growth of your church here in this city and throughout this world. We also ask that you would uh, be with us as we go into the week and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts which, indeed, we were called in one body, and be thankful. Thank you for all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Youth Choir. 
Well, let's take our hymn books and stand once more and turn to number 447. 447. Blessed is the man who endures trials because he will receive the crown of life. 447, it is well with my soul.
Lake Amber Amanda Children's Choir and Church. I do pray it is well with your soul. What a beautiful hymn that is. Brian Henry gave me a shirt with that on there and a good reminder of who we are. Um, oftentimes I'll say, they say, how are you doing? I say, better than I, deserve, I better than I deserve, which is true, but on a positive, even more positive note, it's well with my soul. And that's our prayer for you, these children that are singing, everyone, that we would find our wellness in Christ, in Christ alone. I think that's what really drove the preacher here in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, as he points to the excellency of Jesus Christ. From the beginning to the end, this is essentially a sermon. As we've mentioned, we're going through it. He's talking to Jews, hence Hebrews, and his congregation. They, they have an interest in the cultural, religious system. That's their situation. It certainly would apply to us, whether your religious system is atheism, denial, or any other religious system outside of Christ. And he points to Christ from the very beginning that God spoke in different ways in the past, but now he's spoken through his son. In other words, the, the complete and final revelation, all of what he spoke built up to this very point. It's his beloved son. And a voice comes from heaven that says, listen to him. And I think that's the passion behind this message from this preacher in Hebrews. But he's talking to a specific people, the Hebrews, and they are very familiar with all kinds of rituals and religious symbols. And his point here in chapter 9 is just to remind him once again, in verse 9, if you'll notice, that these symbols point to the present age. They were real rituals that they were required to do by the law. They didn't have any um, efficacy, if you will, in and of itself. It was that they pointed to one who would be, and that is to Christ. They were symbols of this one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 9, he is talking about this tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness that they had with them as they traveled from the bondage in Egypt, slavery, in which they were delivered by a type of Christ, Moses, and then went through this wilderness journey to the very promised land. And you can tell what all that pictures. It, 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 it is a real historical event. These things really did happen. They really were required to engage in these various practices. <coughs> but it was a dramatic picture <coughs> of a spiritual truth, and that is Christ. The tabernacle itself was a tent, a tent of meeting, and we've discussed that in great detail in several weeks. It had an outer courtyard. It pictured Christ's ministry on earth, the feature, the brazen altar, the place of sacrifice, and the laver, the place of sanctification. All of those accomplished by Christ. The tent that's in the inside 
of that courtyard pictures Christ's mediating work in heaven, where he is now. He ascended on high. He gives us the light of life, the bread of life, and he prays for us, this incense. And our prayers are mixed with his. What a great invitation for us to come boldly then before the throne of grace to find help in the time of need. Your prayers are never wasted. This prayer is not a ritual, it is a reality. And God will use it instrumentally to carry out his will. So pray. Pray often. Pray always. As the incense would burn constantly, so we would pray constantly as well. This preacher is going to then describe in verses 3 through 5, where I want to focus on today, some elements here of the final room, the, the most holy place, the most inner room, the, the, the room that pictures the very throne of God. And in it is an artifact that we talked about, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And today I just want to focus on two things. One, looking inside to see what's inside of that box, as he mentions it, and how it relates to what is on top of it, the lid, if you will, it's described as the mercy seat. Now, I'm not sure how this is going to unfold because I have a tendency to go off the rails sometime, so we'll just see. But since he didn't have to give them as much detail, he doesn't get into the details, but I think it'd be helpful for us to do so, particularly in talking about those three items that are in the Ark of the Covenant, the box, and how they relate to, to the mercy seat and, by application, us as well. And so I'm going to look at several texts. They're really historical narratives. It's flyover country, if you will, in oftentimes in our reading. And I'm not suggesting that we need to, to, to spend hours and hours memorizing large portions of the Old Testament. It, it is a historical narrative, much of it, in, in the sections that I'm going to look at. We need to be familiar with it because they do provide examples for us. It's, it's a real historical event, a real things that went on, and it has a real application to us as well. So we're going to do, and we'll see how it unfolds on what I can get to, but you'll want to have your copy of God's Word with you. And some of the places that we'll go to after we just indicate it and root it in the initial phase of Hebrews three, uh, Hebrews 9, 3 through 5, should I say, we'll look at Exodus 16, Numbers 17, and Exodus 20, and maybe a few points in between. So um, they shouldn't be too hard. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is how the Bible starts, so it's right there in the beginning. And we'll read through those narratives, and I'll do the best I can to try to give you a few details about the subject matter of today and how it relates to the mercy seat. So for now, let's read it as he picks up on it without the details in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, and I'll just begin in verse 1, 
He's talking about this first covenant. We call it the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. It had no regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared. That's the tabernacle. The first section, and that's the inner tent, not the courtyard, the inner tent. It has the lampstand, the table of bread, a presence. It is called the holy place. And then note verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense <coughs> and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, which was a gold and in in which was, and note this, this, a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Then he talks on the top, above it, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing, note this, the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot speak in detail, as I've already mentioned. But we're going to look at the details, because we're not as familiar with it as they were. And I'll just say, if you haven't been with us, by the way, when it mentions this altar of incense. This altar of incense was against the veil, and it was brought into, via a censer, into the most holy place. The incense would have permeated both rooms anyway. It's smoke, essentially, and this is a tent, as you could imagine. So it could be associated with either one. He's looking at the Day of Atonement when it's specifically brought in. That's his point in Hebrews. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you will give us light in your word. May we see the significance of the truth that Jesus would have for us indeed today. Communicate to each one. Bring to life those that are outside of Christ and cause us to grow for those of us who are in Christ today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now... The Ark of the Covenant, as I mentioned, you think of it essentially as a box. It's not a superstitious box like science fiction might point out. It, God sanctified it and made it holy because it was representative. And because what it represents, then God does act in certain ways to protect and guard His holiness how he deems. But the box inside itself isn't anything magical. It's just wood. It was wood overlaid with gold. <clears throat> but inside, then, if you'll note our, from our text in Hebrews, he identifies three things that are in there and that they would have been very familiar with. One is the manna. It's in an urn, but it's the manna that's the point. The second thing is the, the rod called Aaron's rod that budded. Your text, some of you might have staff, same type of idea. It's essentially a stick. And the third thing <coughs> are the tablets. This would be the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. The, these were items then were placed, these three, in that box. And then a lid was put on the box. The lid itself is called the mercy seat. On either side, and I put a little picture in the back of your worship folder. You can still see it. You get the idea of it. It had, the best we can in, in replicating it, it had figurines of angels. And their, their wings were essentially overshadowing 
that lid, that top, which is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place in which the atonement from the sacrifice out in the courtyard then was brought in and on the day of atonement was actually applied. And we went through that already. That's where it was received. The blood was applied. It was submitted to God there. The sacrifice didn't occur there. There's no sacrifice there. Sacrifice occurred out in the courtyard, hence representing the cross, Christ's sacrifice. But it was brought to the very throne of God, and God was satisfied here. It was submitted in an appeasement for his wrath, his wrath against sin because it was atoned for. That's what it means. So here you have these items then in this box. And the, and the question would be, why, what's that to provoke to our mind? What did it provoke in their mind? What's this whole purpose? And what's it picturing? This throne of mercy. Well, they were familiar with it, but we're not, as I mentioned. So let's take a journey back into time in the Old Testament and look at Exodus. And I'll begin really in chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. And here we'll find, and there's other places of it, but just I'll try to run through what I can. So bear with me. This is first a look at the manna. Verse 1 of chapter 16 in Exodus. They set out from Edom of the congregation of the people and came to the wilderness of sin. And, and, and it is a Hebrew word, sin, by the way. It doesn't have a connection with our word, but it is kind of ironic in a way, isn't it? Nevertheless, it, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So you can see this is a historical narrative. It's describing a real event. Again, they really were in bondage in Egypt, but it does portray deliverance from bondage. So where do they go? Well, they're in time. They're in wilderness like you might be if you come to Christ. You're freed from sin, and then you're journeying in this life. And here's the experience of the people. Notice that in verse 2. The whole congregation, they're really happy because they got out of Egypt. Remember, there's one interpretation here. This is what really happened to them. But there's many applications. That's the point. Okay? So you can find your own. But nevertheless, no, they didn't. They grumbled. The people of Israel grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This is who God had used to bring about deliverance, a type of Christ in Moses, and someone who would bring about mediation between God and man, the priestly form in Aaron. And what do they do? The people do. Well, we got out of slavery, but now we're going to complain about it. So they all said, well, what, verse 3, the people of Israel said, what, would we have died by the hand of the Lord in the, in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? Or you, have you brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger? 
Fortunately, we're not like that, right? So the, Moses then mediates on their behalf. And we get a glimpse of his prayer to God. Behold, the Lord says then to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now that's really significant. God, God they, they couldn't, they, they, they didn't have faith to believe that God could deliver them from Egypt, but he wasn't going to provide for them in the wilderness. I mean, which do you think would be more difficult? I mean, getting out of Egypt would have been the deal. He's already done that. So you mean God would, oh, oh yeah, I forgot. I've got to provide for them somehow. Amazing, the lack of faith. So he says, I'm going to do this for you. And, and he's going to do it in a certain way. He says, gather a day's portion every day so that I may test them. This testing isn't that God needs to figure out what's in their heart. He knows. The testing is for them to examine themselves. Do they have faith to believe in God? Do they trust God in what he said? In other words, God said, go do this. So you trust him to do that and you recognize that God knows if he asks you to do something, he will make provision for it. So there, that's how this test works out. It's for them. Whether they'll walk in my law or not. In other words, so they'll obey me or not. They'll believe by faith or not. So on the verse 5, so on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily because the seventh day would be a Sabbath. Now, they didn't know anything about the Sabbath. Sabbath hasn't been installed yet. It is part of it, uh, part of their ceremonial law. We'll get into that in, in a bit if we can. But nevertheless, this was brand new to them. But God had told them to do this through Moses. <coughs> so Moses and Aaron said to all the people, at evening you shall know that the Lord it was the Lord, that's Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God provides for them, verse 6, so that they would know God, so that they would have faith, so that they would believe. And he, and he demonstrates it in his provision for them. And secondly, 7, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. The glory is the beauty of his attributes. And one of them is his divine favor in which he gives them. He's heard your grumbling. For what we, that you what are we, Moses would say, that you would grumble against us. The complaints really ultimately are against God. They're saying Moses, they're saying Aaron, but God put them in place, and their grumbling and complaint is really against them, against God. Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. 
then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He goes on to describe what he would do. He gives them quail, and it came over, and it covered in the camp, and the morning dew lay around the lamp. And when the dew had gone up, there, there was on the face of the wilderness fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people saw it, verse 15, they said to one another, What is it? That's the manna. For they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is bread. The bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And here's what the Lord commands. Gather it, each one of you, and note this, as much as he can eat. This is God's provision. This is God's provision in the wilderness. It's, it's not rationed. It is plentiful. That's the imagery that's given there. And then he goes on to describe specifically, they ought to take an omer according to the number of persons, a form of measurement each of you has in the tent, and the people did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And that's, that's key, they had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they want, and, but Moses tells them another instruction. Let no one leave it leave any of it over till the morning. Okay? So here God was going to provide for them as much as they need for that day. Nothing was left over for the next day. But they didn't listen to Moses, verse 20. They were disobedient. By faith, they didn't participate in it. Some left part of it until the morning is set, and what happens? It bred worms and it stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered as much as they could eat, but, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When the, all the leaders of the congregation told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath day to the Lord. So he tells them to go ahead and break to, to bake and boil, and what you boil and what is left over aside will be kept during the morning. So here's a unique thing on the sixth day to provide for the seventh, because this is what God commanded them to do and to believe. So they laid it aside as Moses commanded them, and in that case it didn't stink, and there were no worms in it. And he says to them in verse 25, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will find it you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. This is part of, remember, I'm going to give this to you to test you. <laughs> it isn't that God needs to know what's in their heart. They need to know what's in their heart because of their belief or unbelief. See, the Lord gives you, he says, and... Um, on the seventh day, verse 27, I want you to note this. Some of the people then went out to gather, but they found none. Of course they didn't, because God said, don't do that. You're not going to find any. He wasn't going to provide it in their case on that day. They demonstrated their unbelief. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And he goes on to explain that Sabbath law as it relates 
to the Moses to to the um, children of Israel under the law. Verse thirty-two. Drop down there. This is what the Lord has commanded: Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed before the testimony to be kept. This is the Ark of the Covenant. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years, and they came to inhabit the land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of Canaan. God had provided them from the very beginning to the very end. And then he tells them, this is historically why I wanted you to get an idea of the manna and how it relates to them. And this isn't even half the story, but it's most of it. They're in the wilderness. They need provision. They complain to God, say, they can't, are we out here to just die? God, in spite of that, provides for them, provides for them all that they need, sufficient. He tells them to, to live by faith, to trust him each day. He makes a special provision so that they can have a day of rest. They will call it Sabbath rest, and they violate that. All through here in the manna and that they kept, well, one thing I imagine in keeping it in the box is to know that God provides. But another thing that I think would ring true, too, is their unbelief in his provision. It's in the box. And God was faithful. God provided in each circumstances all the way through. The psalmist calls this the bread of heaven, or angel food, by the way. I'll read it for you, Psalm 78. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels, and he sent them food in abundance. God actually did this. And he didn't just give them something that was just bland. It's described, if you read it further in context in the different places there, this is very tasteful. It, it, it was very sweet to the taste. It, it provided fullness and satisfaction to the people. It, it, it is a staple of life, if you will. And it's then kept now in this box, in this ark. It demonstrates primarily the very faithful care, the provision of God through their wilderness journey. No wonder we are called to pray to God then by Jesus in the model prayer to do what? Give us this day our daily bread. You know why you live? Because of Christ. You know how you continue to live? Because of Christ. And the call is to do so by faith. And to believe in him. To them it was an actual um, situation that pictured that reality. In the book of Revelation, John will use this same concept of manna. And I'll just read it for you. In Revelation 2, 17. He who has, and he's speaking to the church, by the way, in the first part of Revelation, to the churches. He who has an ear to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. 
I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. This hidden manna that he's talking about is the spiritual food to recognize the reality of Christ, who is indeed the bread of life. That Christ, who is the one who provides the sustenance, that's what's hidden. It, it isn't hidden that it isn't uh, there. It's hidden is that you don't have eyes to see it. And it is through Christ's regenerative work in your heart, you'll then see Christ as the very bread of life. Jesus would say that to his disciples in John chapter 6, where he says in 648, I am the bread of life. You see, all the time, it pictured Christ all the way through. For them, reality, yes, they're getting uh, physical bread to eat, but it just pictures and points to our sustenance through Jesus Christ. Jesus would say, your fathers gave, the fathers ate manna in the wilderness, John 6, 49, and they died. In other words, th that, that was just the symbol. Here's the reality. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. That's Christ. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. See, it, is, it all points to Christ, the manna. The second item in the box is the rod, the stick, Aaron's rod that budded. And you can find some details of that in Numbers chapter 17. I'm going to back up just to give you historical reference, and I'll see what of this I can get through, just so that you'll know. <coughs> you may be somewhat <clears throat> familiar with it. If you're not, let me give you the setting of chapter 17. You can find it in chapter 16, and I'll go through it rather quickly. Number 16, it's... Um, it's Korah's rebellion. Korah had um, some responsibilities with the tabernacle. They, they were the ones that the, from that tribe that were called to participate in the setup and the takedown and the carrying of this tabernacle and, this, and these objects. And they complained again here in chapter 16 with Moses and, and Aaron. They didn't like how things were being arranged and, and managed. Moses responds to them, and you can find back to 16.8. I'll try to set this up quickly. He says, um, Moses says to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you for the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister. He gave him a great privilege that he brought you near to him and all your brothers and sons of Levites with you. Would you also seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it's against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? 
So we already had the manna, and yeah, it's God's provision of his supply. Now here, the grumbling, same type of activity going on, but it's, it's on who God has put in their life to provide spiritual leadership. And ultimately, what does he say? You're not grumbling against Aaron. You're grumbling against God. That's the point. And so Moses then kind of puts them up for a test. And you'll find that in verse 16. He tells um, Korah and his company to come before the Lord. And you want to take our position? Okay. Come before the Lord and bring your censers, 250, if you will, also, and Aaron, his censer. So every man took his censer, in verse 18, I'm in number 16, 18, and put fire in them and laid the censer on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. This is this tabernacle and Moses with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now, if you're, if you're um, in fellowship with God, the, the glory of the Lord is an awesome thing. But if you're outside of the fellowship of God, trust me, it's an awful thing. Okay? It, there's no in-between. It's one or the other. This is why we fear the Lord. And for those that are in Christ, that fear is a reverential awe. For, this, for those that are outside of Christ, they're going to find out. This is the, 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 this is the most awful thing in the world. Revelation talks about the time of Christ's appearance and judgment coming. They would just wish the rocks would fall on them. So here's what happens. Well, God shows up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 20, I'm in Numbers 16, 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. That's what I'm talking about. Judgment comes. And they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Then Moses rose and went and to Datham and uh, Abraham, and the elders of the Israel followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, said, Depart from these tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling. And what happens? Well, the Lord splits apart the earth. The ground opens, verse 30. It swallows them up and all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord, and as soon as he finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with all their households, all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all of Israel who were with them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out of the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. That's a setup for Aaron's rod, the budded. A grumbling against God, and particularly the leadership that God had put in place to bring about... Um, 
a positive spiritual direction in their life, that they would have their own way and step in that place. And really, who they're angry against was God himself. So God does put a mark and a test. That's chapter 17. That gets into this rod that buds. And I'll read it for you. Chapter 17, drop down to verse 2. Speak then, this is on the basis of Korah's rebellion, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs. That's the rod or stick. It's just a dead branch, if you will. One for each father's house from all their chiefs, according to their father's house, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff. Write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of the meeting before the testimony where I'll meet with you. Where's that? The tabernacle, right? right? Put it right there. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. And thus I'll make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against you. Now, there is going to demonstrate what is right. Moses spoke to the people of Israel and all their chiefs, gave them staffs, each one chief, according to their fathers, the house of twelve staffs, and the staff of Aaron was among their staff. And Moses deposited the staffs before the, before the Lord <coughs> in the tent of the testimony. And on the next day, Moses went in the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and bore ripe almonds. You say that would take a miracle, right? That is correct. That would be a miracle. It, it, it clearly distinguished that. Moses then brings out all the staffs for the Lord from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. And they looked and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of the grumblings against me, lest they die. It is a matter of life and death to not believe God. God's choice was not only vindicated by bringing this stick, this dead piece of wood to life, but beyond that, you notice, it produced blossoms and flowers and Almonds, in this case, fruit. It portrays the very resurrection power of God. Life only comes through Him. Fruitfulness only comes through Him. And these characters wanted to manufacture it in and of themselves. You can stick fruit on an apple tree, but it's going to rot. Right? It has to be produced by life. It is God who gives life. They grumbled against the, the leadership that God gives, the source of life. The third thing that was in the box was the covenant. And for that, you can go to Exodus 20. You're probably familiar with it. Ten Commandments. And I'll just go ahead and read that section for your hearing. And we'll drop down to verse 3. It enumerates them. This is essentially the core of the law. Uh, the Jews count roughly 613. Uh, these are 10 key ones. 
You shall, verse 3, have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. <coughs> you shall <coughs> you shall not <clears throat> excuse me, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord would not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourners with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness to your neighbor. You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is of your neighbor's. He goes on to talk about <coughs> how this is sealed. It describes lightning and flashing. And as you can understand, fear in that sense. These are what we call the Ten Commandments. They were also put in that box. The testimony, if you will, of the Ark of the Lord. The first few, 2 to 11, deal with God's relationship with man and the rest deal with man and his relationship with his community. We have summarized them, and in fact, if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, which is a helpful resource, he's got a little chart there. If you have it, you can see it. If not, I'll just mention it briefly. It does a good job at enumerating these ten. The first deals with polytheism, the second with making images, Third is swearing. Fourth is the Sabbath. Fifth is being obedient to parents. Sixth is murder, adultery. Seven, theft. Eight, false witness. Nine and ten is covet is on coveting. Now, all of these, save the last, coveting, has a specific penalty to it. We like to think of the Ten Commandments, and then I'm fine with it. If you want to post the Ten Commandments out in your front yard and so forth, I think it's a great idea. But you know what the penalty of all of them were? Save the last? Death. Oh, yeah. And we already saw how God was serious about it in the, in the previous events that we just looked at. The death penalty is enumerated for each one of these commandments except for coveting. So if you want to do something, go ahead and covet. No, just joking. Um, it, it, it doesn't specifically say death. The rest of them actually do. These Ten Commandments, a lot of people misunderstand, essentially they are the core of the law. God gave this Mosaic law. Most of these are... Um, communication of the aspects of God's moral law. This Sabbath is not. It is a ritual. And that's why in the New Testament, you'll see all nine repeated 
in various places in the New Testament and call on the church to follow God's moral law. Of course, we're not going to have any other gods, right? We're not going to make idols. We're not going to swear by anything. Uh, We're going to honor our mother and father. Honoring them honors God. And that's how you teach children to honor and respect God. It begins with the parents. Uh, Murder is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Theft is wrong. Bearing false witness is wrong. Coveting is wrong. All of that. Those are moral sins. And they happen to be the same as specified in the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, the only one that's abrogated is the Sabbath. Because we are not under the Sabbath law. This is Sunday, the Lord's Day. This is not the Sabbath. Now, you want to make today holy and respect Christ? Honor that, for sure, as the church has always done. But look at Colossians 2.16. You can read it later. It says, let no one despise you concerning Sabbath day. We're not keeping the Sabbath. This is the Lord's day. So that's the law that's put in the box as well. And what's the association with it? Well, they broke the law. That's the association with it. They broke all of it. From the very beginning and here, and I'll try to um, push through this the best I can, but I want you to see the section of it when this law was given. In Exodus chapter 32, you might remember a familiar story. Moses goes up on the mountain to get this law from God. This tablet of stone that is written by the very finger of God. He goes up on the mountain and why he's delayed up there. And I'm in Exodus 32 now. The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to them, um, said to him up, make us gods that we shall go that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off rings of gold that they were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold that was in their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early, verse 6, and the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a euphemism that they engaged in all kinds of immoral activity. That's what it's trying to say, communicate there. So God tells Moses, verse 7, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's this rising up and playing and drinking. It was was absolute debauchery. They they, they not only made another idol, they violated the second commandment, right, already, and, and then said this image images God. No, it doesn't. He turned aside quickly out of what I've commanded and they made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses engages then in, um, in a typical fashion as an intermediator and, and he asks God for mercy. 
You know what these people deserved? According to the commandment? What is it? Death? Yeah. But he has an intermediary. And Moses says, hey, and look down to verse 13. Remember, I, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And all of this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. What he, do, what he does is he appeals to the Abrahamic covenant, which, by the way, will be fulfilled in its completion. And here he's calling on the Lord to do this. And it says, verse 14, that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken. God told them what they deserve. You know what they deserve is death. You know what they got? Some of them did die. He, they will. But for the most of them, God gives them, the word is mercy. Right? It, it's a plea. That's the idea of relenting. And so, so Moses goes down and he has these tablets, the very work of God, the writing of God engraved on the tables, verse 16. And he sees, when Joshua heard the noise of the people, he shouted, said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory, the sound of, it is the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the cap, camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It really did happen but it also demonstrated what they're doing. They just broke every one of God's laws. Verse 28, you'll see that in that judgment did come. 3,000 men did die. And then a plague was sent in verse 35. You'll find this, and I'll, I, I think I'll have you turn here. Go ahead and turn to... 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll look at verse 6, because it picks up some of this. First Corinthians chapter 10. So here we have, note this, you got the manna, you got the rod, and the commandment. They're all good things. What are they all connected to? Rebellion, evil, and wickedness of man. And Paul will remind his church at Corinth that in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, that these things took place as examples for us. They're concrete examples you can see. And why? That we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, this is a euphemism for immorality, and he'll explain it here. <coughs> and you see in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Instead, we, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, or, and here's this other thing, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, verse 10. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. All those pages, the fantastic narrative, and I encourage you, perhaps in your reading through the Old Testament, that you would keep that in mind. This really did happen to these people, but they're written down to provide an example of two things. To One, to not think of yourselves too highly. Take heed lest you stumble. Here were God's people and God's law. I mean, could you imagine even the time they got Moses up on the mountain with God and they could see it and they're at the bottom and they're making a golden calf and then engaging in all kinds of immorality? Can you imagine that? The rebellion against the leadership that God has put in to help guide you into spiritual truth. The rebellion against God and being anxious of his provision for you in this life. All of it demonstrates the heart of man. Desperately wicked. But it also demonstrates what's on top of the box. You see, those three items in the box. The bread, the rod, and the law. They broke all of them. They were guilty. What's on the top of the box? Just a single word. It's called mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We, we, we grumble and complain against God. Do you think you deserve food? Grumble and complain against God's spiritual leadership. Grumble and, and complain against God in His commandments that cause you to flourish. Yeah, I would be guilty of all. I don't know about you, but I look at many times that I find myself coming up short quite a bit. But the good news is the mercy seat's right there. And it isn't a place of sacrifice for you to create some sort of sacrifice. The sacrifice has already been done by Christ. And that sacrifice has already been received by God. You come boldly to the throne of grace to receive help in your time of need. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for your mercy which is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I normally give you a moment to reflect on these things, and I'll do so now. You have sinned to confess. You confess to Christ, and guess what? You'll receive mercy. If you need to confess Christ as Lord, do it even now, because he is. Take a moment and think on these things.
Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. For um, you are good and great and holy God. And may we praise your name continually for the mercy that you have granted. And beyond that, the grace that you give. Because you're a faithful and glorious God. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to change the hymn to Great is Thy Faithfulness just because I was thinking about it and I want to sing it. So, but Jerry, did you find the number? Or you're a little nine six. And we have to clear this with the person in case we pick the wrong number. Sometimes we'll get a number and it's really done in a different way. Is that, is that the right one? No, I know you can play everything, but the questions are going to be sing. Some of these songs are done in different tunes. We're not using, but that one is nine six. Okay. Is that the Baptist version? All right, let's stand and sing together as Jerry leads us. And I want you to think about the faithfulness of God and his goodness today as we sing praise to him. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.